0: Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk
1: with real people navigating the global orphan crisis.
0: Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of this. Uh, podcast you know brandon and i actually absolutely love doing this it's something that we just not only enjoy spending time together but more than that we get to talk with just amazing people which you guys know because you've been a part of this show assuming you have been a part of the show if you're just on for today's guest well i understand that as well because we got another great one but uh before we get to caroline brandon how you doing
2: Doing okay. I'm doing okay. Yeah, I can't complain. Uh, you know, house is house is busy as always. Uh, you know, just trying to round up kids and this and that. But yeah, I got no complaints, man. H- how are things down there in your neck of the woods?
0: They're going all right. Going all right. You know, as uh, as we get into the new year and we're just trying to get things going. You know, it's always it's always that post holiday kind of okay now now let's just get into the rhythm again right mm-hmm. because you know it's always a busy house you, you and i have both uh, both have pretty busy houses so mm-hmm. it's a lot of stuff going on and then to just kind of get back into that rhythm is always always a challenge you know to get to get that going again
2: yeah, well, I I found uh 2021 towards the end the wheels were coming off a little bit, so we're trying to find a we're trying to find a new rhythm uh, as much as as possible. Uh, obviously, uh, life is life is never. Uh, never, never not chaotic or, uh, something like that, yeah. but, uh, trying to find those healthy rhythms is is really important. So hopefully people are, are getting that same thing, uh, here in the new year. So,
0: yeah. And I imagine we're not alone in that. I mean, you'd say the wheels falling out. It reminds me of, of a van or the transmission almost fell out, but it pretty much <laughs> needs to come out. Um, you know, and those type things there it's, it's continually trying to not trying, it's continually remembering that. These are blips on the radar in the midst of these things. They seem massive. They seem like, man, this is just, how are we going to get past this thing? Yeah. But I just, even, even before this interview this morning, I was just thinking, it's just money. Yeah. It's just money. You yeah. Take a breath, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Breathe. Right. And, and, and it is, and it, and it sometimes will um, overwhelm. And I think that how can we keep it? How can we keep these things from overwhelming How can we remember, you know, and take refuge in God's promises and just remember that uh, he's got us and in the midst of all these different things, as we're talking about these issues with uh, everything that we talk about on this podcast, you know, God's got us and he's a God of abundance. So what does that look like? And so today we have another interview with someone who has, who is working in some, uh, in India and some other parts of the world doing some incredible work. So, so who do we have Brandon?
2: Yeah, this, uh, today we got Caroline Boudreaux coming on from Miracle Foundation. Uh, they've been doing great work for about 20 years or so impacting a lot of kids in India. And then they're actually expanding. Uh, they have a a cool new foster care app that that's actually rolled out, uh, uh, here in the States they are based out of Texas and yeah, just doing great work. Um, and, uh, Caroline, we're going to get to talk about a few different things, um, and along with this episode, we'll also be having uh, this season um, uh, some youth from the Youth for Social Impact, which was a project that Miracle Foundation did uh, to kind of support care leavers, um, which, which I thought was really cool. So this is kind of a one out of two uh, for this season as we get to talk with uh, Miracle Foundation. So uh, we're excited to, uh, to get into it with uh, Caroline, who, who founded the organization about 20 years ago.
0: Caroline, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. How are you doing this morning?
1: Doing great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, we're really excited for this for this conversation, and you know, and as always, as we as we welcome people into our space, we want to get to know you. We want our audience to get to know you a little bit better too. Some people may have heard of you, may have watched your TED talk, may have um, just. To know about the Miracle Foundation. That's why they're listening. But, but a lot of people probably don't know a lot about you. So we, we always love to just kind of get to know you better, right? So can you just share a little bit about who you are and how you came to be uh, working within the orphan and vulnerable child space?
1: Well, I'm Caroline Boudreaux, obviously from South Louisiana. Uh, I uh, lived in Austin, Texas, most of my life. Um, but um when I was 30, my best friend and I decided that we were going to take a trip around the world for a year. So we were going to quit our jobs and travel and see the world. And one of the places she wanted to go was India because she'd been sponsoring a little boy there and she wanted to go meet him. And Philip, I have to tell you, I thought it was bunk. I thought there's no way this kid is real. They give everybody the same picture. I, mean, I was like making fun of her the whole time. So we get to India in May of 2000, we meet the little boy she'd been sponsoring in good faith. He was real. He had everything that she had been promised that he would have. Um, and so we started doing volunteer work there every day in this village. And the whole time I'm in this village, I'm like, wow, I mean, this, is the, this is the base of the pyramid. I mean, this is, these are the poorest of the poor. This is I'm so honored to be, I, I just thought I was looking at the poorest people on earth. Um, I was wrong, unfortunately um so then uh on we're there on mother's day it's may of 2000 mother's day comes along i get up in the morning call my mom for mother's day go work in this village all day 119 degree heat we you know crazy and then get invited to this local's house for dinner and we go to his house we walk in in his in his in his house and, and we walk into an orphanage and my life changed that very minute I was not prepared at all to walk into an orphanage, much less see 110, you know, hungry, empty looking, bald children. And so we had a beautiful dinner with them, a prayer service with them. And we were calling them Velcro babies because they were just attaching to us. And um, this little girl came and put her head on my knee. And like, when you pick them up, they just push their little bodies into you. They just steal the affection And um, I rocked her to sleep and I went to put her in her crib and I walk into a room with these, with these wooden beds. And, you know, when I, when I put that hungry orphan girl on a bed on mother's day, I heard her bones hit that bed. And it was at the first time that I truly understand what poverty really meant. I mean, poverty is when no one loves you. And so um, I started the Miracle Foundation that very day because I saw the human potential in their eyes. I saw who they were in their eyes. And I knew that they were miracles. And if they just had a foundation, maybe they could thrive. And so that's, that's why I started the organization. It's, um, it's almost 22 years old and, um, we've been fighting with honor and, and gratitude ever since.
0: Yeah. You know, that's something that, uh, it's, it's hard for people who haven't seen the, the poverty and seen the, the, the situations a lot of these people live in to really understand it. Like you said that you, you, you thought you'd seen the the poorest of the poor and you hadn't. And I assume you have now. So that's part of what, you know, you, you see in, in what, what is that as you come back, there's a lot of, you know, this is this, this is actually folks. We talk about being off script. This is off script. This is something that I know that as I go and travel the world and I'm sure Brandon is similar. When we come back to the United States, There is something that it's, I think it's a, both. for me, it's been a both and it's, it inspires me more to do more around the world, but it also is something that in me here in the United States to help people understand that we have responsibility with what we're given. So have you, have you experienced that as well? Um, Is that something that, or is it, is it different with you? And and this is something that I, I don't think I've ever asked this question on the show, but that's something that. Some people feel guilty. Other people, it's a it spurs them on. And I'm just curious from your standpoint, what, how has that been with you when you are even today, every time you go somewhere else? Um, what is what, what is that with you when you come back here to the United States?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't I don't think it's such a geographic thing. I think it's more like I'm just so grateful for what I'm, I've been given. i You know, I struggled a lot in the beginning with the why question, you know, like, why was I given to two parents that loved me so dearly and they are not? And, you know, what, you know, like what is, I mean, is it, is this just a, a, you know, a zip code lottery thing? Or, I mean, I'm just so confused about why I would be given the kind of life that I was given, the kind of foundation that I was given, and they would be left in the bushes when they were three days old for somebody to find them. Thank God it was a human, not an animal kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, um, I decided since I, I'm never going to answer that question, it's really just a booby prize. If I did get the answer to the question, it changes nothing. And so really it's just about what, what can I do about it? You know, how can I help instead of, instead of the why? And so then, you know, the other thing is I, I, uh, I just made a, I made a deal with God back on that mother's day, you know, and I told him that I would take care of his business if he would take care of mine and that. You know, I, I don't think it was a mistake that I was, I was in an orphanage on Mother's Day. I mean, who gets that? And, you know, I, I don't know if he thinks I'm dumb or dense or whatever, It was like a neon sign. It's like, you know, these kids deserve some help. And then, you know what I, I think the, the other cool thing is when I was in the corporate world, which I really, I came from a pretty corporate background. Um, you know, I had everything that money could buy, everything that money could buy but I didn't have contentment and fulfillment and peace and a feeling of, um, making a difference. And so now I have everything that money can't buy and it really is just a beautiful, it's a beautiful difference.
2: That's, that's really well said. And, you know, one of the things I kind of want to highlight that I think is so important, um, how you defined poverty. You know, there's this really great publication called Voices of the Poor. Um, You're probably familiar with it that came out a number of years ago. Um, When you talk with people that are in those most impoverished uh, communities, they normally describe poverty in relational and emotional terms, not in physical and material terms. And I think that there's a lot to that. And, and as for me, I'm a, you know, I'm a student of transformational development, which was this, um, you know, this, this view on, on community development, um, that was, that was championed by some people that came out of world vision. And, and it's just, it's a helpful thing because, and this, this is the same, um, same school of thought that Brian Ficker, you know, it's, it's broken relationship with God, broken relationship with other people, broken relationship with yourself and broken relationship with, with, uh, with uh, society. And um, I hope I got those four right. Um, but, uh, but, it, but that's what I hear in your, in your piece as well. And, you know, interestingly, uh, Caroline, I was actually uh, first called to uh, work with orphaned vulnerable children on father's day. So uh, oh. uh, quite fitting. <laughs> yeah. um but i would i would uh love to uh, dig in further with just kind of the experience that miracle foundation has had most of your guys's work has been in india you guys have made a lot of progress there impacted a lot of children and families um, can you maybe just give us kind of an overview of what you guys have seen uh in child welfare um, in india and you know talk about what services are available obviously you know from the founder story that you just shared with us it didn't seem like great services were available um, as you and your friend visited the at children's home. Um, but what services are available and then what gaps are, are still pervasive when we look at child welfare in India?
1: Yeah, um, so definitely um, we can talk about India, but really globally, children are separated from their families due to poverty. So if there's one underlying factor, there's one common denominator, it's poverty. So that's, that's really the underlying um, issue that we're dealing with is is poverty. Forty percent of children are separated because of death or desertion by their father. Now, if you have a, if you have money or you have family with money, you don't lose your you don't lose your mother at the same time. But when when your father leaves or dies, forty percent of the children that are in institutions that is the that is the case. They're living without their father, and so their mother couldn't take care of them. Um, so. You know, there's there's four things that have to change if we want a family for every child. And that's really, at the end of the day, our mission is a family for every child. I know that is a lot of people's mission. In fact, there's uh, about 156 nonprofit organizations that are all working toward the same mission of a family for every child. I mean, that is something to be um, grateful for. That is an Achilles heel of nonprofit organizations not being able to work together. But in this space, there's a lot of us working toward the same mission. And if you're gonna if you're going to have a family for every child um, in the first place, you really have to look at um, changing the narrative. So a lot of times people think that orphanages are great places for kids. I mistakenly thought if we can improve the standards of care in orphanages, children would be would do better. That was a mistake. Actually we learn now, that children belong with their families, that they do have mothers and families. And so, but you have to change the narrative. And I think the narrative is definitely changing. It's changing in India. It hasn't gone all the way to the ground, but it's changing. It changed at the UN level, it changed uh, globally. And so that that narrative really, really has to change. The second, and it's changing in India. The second thing that has to change is the approach. So in India specifically, social workers and people that work for the government are the gatekeepers. You cannot enter legally into an institution without a government um, social worker approving that. And so the second thing you have to change is the approach. So Miracle Foundation partners with Five state governments, we're in a big um, pilot, we're with five state governments right now in UNICEF, and we're training every single one of their social workers on what exactly what you're asking, what services are available for people, what questions do you ask where you can find a better placement? So just for example, girls as young as six and boys as young as eight know exactly who they can live with. They know who they can live with. They know if they're going to be safe. They know if they're going to be because they all want an education and they all really want to make it out. And they, you know, they have this kind of rigor about them. And so the second thing that has to change is is the approach. And that means the um, the people that work, the leaders, the expertise, the people that work in the system have to be trained and and their their behavior needs to change. The third thing that you have to have is you have to have. um. Community assistance. So, the community needs to know about the narrative shift and the approach shift. The community at the ground level has to know. And then, number four, um, all stakeholders have to be included in the conversation. That's what I mean when I say we give girls as young as six and boys as young as eight the opportunity to sit on their own committee and make their own decisions. So, um, India is definitely changing. India, I would even say, is a thought leader in the space. You know, we hear about Rwanda deinstitutionalizing, Bulgaria is deinstitutionalizing. There's some small countries in Eastern Europe that are deinstitutionalizing. India is deinstitutionalizing, and that's a massive, massive job. So India is changing rapidly. We're lucky to be a part of it. Yeah, and and, uh, yeah.
2: Well, one of the things that you mentioned there, you know, when it comes to deinstitutionalization, you know. Let's see, 2022 or sorry, it's 2022 now when this is released. 2020, uh, we saw these rapid reintegrations due to COVID, and India was one of those was one of those countries that had a number of their um, different provinces, states, you know, whatever they call them, uh, that were rapidly sending kids home without proper preparation. And um, I'm aware of a number of kind of large scale child protection issues that kind of resulted from that. How did how did COVID kind of reshape that landscape, especially for such a large country um, that uh, is also on this care reform and deinstitutionalization path? I mean, what did what did that look like for for the people that you guys are working with in these states that you guys are are operating in?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So we were able to work with about. Um, 2,500 children that were placed back into their families without process. So 64% of all children in institutions in India went home during COVID. Now, if they can go home during COVID, why are they not home? Why the heck are they living in an orphanage? I mean, this really has to be our question. And so Miracle Foundation partnered, we partnered with um, we, we did two things. We partnered with, um, 2,500 children and filled out our thrive scale on them. So we have a, a, a scale, we have a, uh, a tool and we ask questions on, for, on, on five wellbeing domains. So we look at the child's surroundings. Who's with them? Who do they live with? Who's around them? Is there some weird, strange uncle lurking around I me? Mean, like who's taking care of these kids? Who's got their eye on this child? What, you know, what, who lives with them? The second one is what is their household income? You know, if they are so poor, I mean, there are great plans, they call them schemes in India for untouchables. There are great schemes for widows. There are schemes that we can put together with the families to, to give them an income. The third one is education. We don't have to sell this in India. India loves education. We're not having to convince people to educate their kids. That's not an issue. And then the, um, the fourth thing is um, mental health and, uh, and health. And is there a doctor? And can the kids keep talking to their counselors? And then, of course, last, but not definitely not least, is their living conditions? Do they have a roof over their head? Do they have a bed? And so we've been able to fill out this Thrive Scale for, the, for 2,300 kids. That's the first thing we did. And so that's going to prove whether they're permanently and safely home. And then the second thing we did is we, um, we, we worked with 3,000 families who had already taken their kids back. So before COVID, they already had their kids back and we gave them cash transfers for a few months because we knew that they were the most vulnerable, that those are the kids that are most likely to get back put back into the system. And so we kept them alive for a few months um, with cash transfers. So COVID actually played into our hands as a group that wants children out of institutions. So it, it actually turned out to be a good thing.
2: Have you found that those children that were reunified back into their families have been able to remain there? Or did they have a time where they went we either know. back into institutions or had some sort of disruption that led them to the streets? Uh, what does the, the follow-up look like?
1: Yeah, so our follow-up happens for two years. It's very much like an adoption, right? So there's this post place we call it post-placement. The cadence is based on the difficulty of the placement. So if, if girls went to their grandmother's house, that's a pretty easy placement. If somebody went to somebody that they didn't really know very well, they went kind of home to a, you know distant distant relative we do uh, we do more post-placement follows up what we learn is that the that breakdown usually happens within six months w- once you hit the six-month mark for the sta- the stabilization really just kind of it, it, it's gelling the nightmares happen within the first six months and children you know are empowered to be to make the call so you know in the united states We might tell a kid, look, if there's a problem, here's a number you can call, but they don't know this person. They don't trust this person in India. We're saying, if there's a problem, who are you going to call? What person would you like to have that first call with? If there's an issue. And then they tell us who that is. We call that person and we say, Hey, be on the lookout because Rajiv is going to call you if there's an issue. And they're always so honored. And they're, they're like, he picked me. He, he picked me. And so then, this guy's not going to wait for Rajiv to call him. He's going to call and check up on Rajiv. And so we've kind of created this this 360 approach with it.
2: No, that's really that's really awesome, and and I love some of those um, services that you guys are providing in terms of post placement support and so forth. I mean, those things are are absolutely critical if we're going to see care reform done safely. Um, so I really appreciate uh, you highlighting those. You know, as I as I think about, you know, what is it that all of us are after? We want to see children in families and doing well in families. You know, really thriving, um, safe, loved, protected. Um, maybe if you could just, uh, you know, from your guys' experience, what are some of those core elements that really establishes a firm foundation for children to reach their fullest pot- potential?
1: really it's those five well well-being domains that we track with our thrive scale. So who they live with really matters a great deal. As you know, I mean, who you live with makes a very big difference in your life, what that economy is in the household is really important. Your living conditions, your education, and your health and mental health. Those five things, if we can get those stable for children, children really, really do well. And then just so just, just to add just one finer point, you know, cause we're, we're talking specifically about India Um, India doesn't have foster care. India has kinship care. So these kids are truly going to someone in their own families. And we are finding that truly works. We are bringing that kinship care over to the United States and working in in the foster care system in the United States, because it's really working where when you put children in foster homes with strangers, the chemistry is not there and it's really just not working. So this kinship care India is on to something. India is on to something for the world to to take a look at.
2: Yeah, no, I agree and and I think that that kinship uh care is you know a lot of these are collectivist societies. I I lived for 8 years in Tanzania and um you know when we talk about alternative family care even when we say oh kinship is alternative family and a lot of these collectives this societies, that's not alternative family that's that's just family you know that's just their family of origin um and there's actually a lot of those cultural things that we find in the global south that actually work better uh than anything that we have here and um so so i appreciate you uh that you bringing that up because I, I found that to be the case as well. And and we have to look at those, you know, and, and I, I assume you're also friends with Ian Forber Pratt, who's looked at a lot of these things and actually looked at India and the U S um, and we'll link back uh, his most recent podcast with us uh, in the show notes, but uh, yeah, really, really great stuff, Caroline.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It's important. You know, we deinstitute, the United States deinstitutionalized in the sixties, you know, so it's a pretty old antiquated system. So now that these developing countries are starting to uh, deinstitutionalize, institutionalize we, we have some modern technology that we didn't have before and we should be using it.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because early on, like the curse of knowledge hits us quite a bit, you know, when we're, when we're here and, and I, I actually got bit by it earlier when I, when I used, and I, I think you were taken aback by the question earlier um, because I didn't define poverty. Right. And I'm glad you did that, Brad, Brandon, when you talked about when helping hurts and when you talked about the um, just the people in poverty, they they define it differently. And I think that that's what I was getting at. And I, I apologize for not being clear on that. But that idea of we are we are, I think, in the U.S., we are poor in a lot of ways, too, that we don't see um, community poor. I think we're very community poor in in most of the United States. Not not all. There are some places, actually, most inner cities where there there is material poverty, often are not community poor, which is an interesting thing that we need to say. How can we maximize the community um, that we that we actually have? That we need to take lessons from that. As you talked about, we need to take lessons from different parts of the world. And bring them into our lives as well as we're as we're interacting, which is why when I teach a class on this stuff, I tell the talk to the students about it and that, and talk with them about their experiences and say, um, you know, what are you learning? Not you're not just going to quote serve the the, the quote unquote less fortunate. I said that that all that talks about is material poverty when you're exactly. talking about that. And there's so much more to life. And so I love that you're talking about that, that thriving that. Now, what does that look like? It's not just about getting food in their stomachs. It's not just about getting a house over their head. It's so much more. And so I appreciate that. And I just wanted to clarify that for folks out there who think of might have forgotten about um, what we've talked about on the show since the beginning. Um, so, um, and as and well. So I just wanted to, to, to clarify that. But the other thing that we often, I think, miss is in, are running of nonprofits and in the United States for some reason um it seems like nonprofits have become where people just say well they don't need to be run as well because they're nonprofits they can uh, be run differently than businesses because and, you know if you can get volunteers to come in and do stuff then then do it um some of the things that i've talked to people though is you get what you pay for right oh. i think is is so true Um, and, uh, I I assume you agree with that. Uh, can you, can you just, your, your reaction tells me you want to say something about that right now? What, what, what do you, what do you think about that? When I say that?
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, how do you hold a volunteer accountable? How do you give them KPIs? I mean, these are still at the end of the day jobs and they're no joke jobs. This is a no joke deal that we're we're talking about lives here. Mm -hmm. And so while I so appreciate people saying, you know, my 12 year old is very interested. Can they come volunteer for your organization? I, I oftentimes say, what can your 12 year old do for your husband's company, you know, or your company? What can they, what can they actually do? You know, can we give them a chance to be a kid and and you come up and, <laughs> you know, but we are, um, yeah, like I said, I, you know, I came from the corporate world. And when I learned about some of these rules in the nonprofit space, I was shocked. Like, Why can we not pay people? Why do I get dinged? to grow my company. Why don't, you know, people don't want to pay for marketing. I mean, it's like, well, in one way I kind of get it, but don't we want to make the pie bigger? And and that's really what we're trying to do with marketing. We're trying to tell more people about our work. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of things in the, uh, there's a lot of things in the corporate world that I was very used to that I came to the nonprofit space and just thought, well, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, we want to hire the best people for these jobs. We want really, really smart people. And sometimes you do get paid, you got to get what you pay for. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, you know, and it's something that when I'm talking with people about this and, and they say, well, why don't you just have people raise their funds, raise their support? Because that's become popular in a lot of nonprofits, um, not popular, that's become common practice in a lot of nonprofits where the people coming on staff um, Campus Crusade is a good example. They have thousands of employees um, and they all raise their own support. And I knew Dr. Bright and he said, I raise my own support too. And it's just part of what we do. But the, as I've said to people, though, the, the issue with that is if you really need the position, you can't wait for them to raise their, raise their support. You need to actually be raising that funding yourself. And, and as, you know, as I said, if you don't need it, then you don't need to have the position. So if you need it, you need it now. If you don't need it, then you don't need it. So I think we're in this support raising. Sometimes we are actually inefficient because we take someone because they can raise support. Um, Rather than I think in in recently, you, you had another interview where you said in the nonprofit world, we get dinged for paying employees well and investing in marketing. This makes no sense to me. We are dependent on people to donate out of the kindness of their heart. And even though we do awesome, incredible work, it's very hard to know how much money we'll get in a year, which makes it hard to budget. If I got to spend the time I do on developing programs for the poor, instead of raising money, the world would be a very different place for the 15,000 children we support. I can relate with that in so many ways where I talk to people where I go, I'd rather go and work and make money by helping people 50% of the time, rather than raising funds 50% of the time, because then I'd actually feel like we're, we're doing stuff because it, it, I'm not saying that raising funds is not a way to serve people and help people understand that they can be part of something bigger than they than than themselves, but can you elaborate on that a little bit more and what that looks like? Because we don't talk about that. We, we haven't talked about this. We've talked about talking about this on the show. We never have, and I'm glad we are. It's a great TED Talk on it. I forget the guy's name who did it, but- um, Dan Pilata. Dan Pilata. Dan Pilata did it. There you go. There you go. Great talk on this topic. But can you elaborate a little bit more on that as far as I don't think people realize how much time does go into the fundraising aspect rather than the ideation? And the creation of, you know, the the innovative work that uh, that we really need to be able to do. It's not just simply going out and feeding a kid. There's so much innovation that I don't think people realize. Can you speak to that? And oh. what is not being done because we need to spend most of our time fundraising?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't mind fundraising at all. I'm thrilled to fundraise. I'm super happy to fundraise. Like you said, it gives people an opportunity to play in a game that's bigger than who they are. And they absolutely love it. And we can take money and and make a huge difference um, for children. What I don't like is how I have to spend the money. I have to spend the money um, uh, where I can't invest in my employees, which means I can't get employees that pay that I can pay enough to really scale our program. And it's, it's keeping us small. And that's really the issue is it's just keeping us really small because of what we can and cannot do with our money. We can't pay employees. Well, we can't do marketing. We can't invest in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So to the people that are donating, I think that there's some behavior changes that if that, if those change would be power, powerful. So for example, we are aiming for 2030. We're trying to reduce the number of um, institution children and in institutions by 2030. We're cutting it at least in half by 2030. Um, we have donors that have promised us an annual gift every single year for the next nine years. That is game-changing. Unrestricted, long-term, annual or monthly giving changes the game for the nonprofits. So when COVID hit, we were able to turn on a dime. We missed two months of programming because of COVID, because we couldn't figure out how to get, you know, all of our, we have so many social workers in Indy. We have so many things that just get deployed, but because we had unrestricted long-term giving, we were able to change our course and we got tablets to children that had gotten home, we got Wi Fi to children that had gotten home, we loaded that we loaded those tablets with educational um, things in their own language, and putting Wi Fi in their house I mean that is how we communicated with them. That's how we continue to do our mental health with them. And so the only reason we were able to innovate was because we had that kind of money. So the, the real question is not whether I pay people or whether I invest in marketing. That's not really the question. The question is, can we get donors to think about their giving the way we think about our health, which is more than not, right? So we, a lot of people only think about their giving one day a year, right? They Mm -hmm. write all their checks, they do it one day a year. Wouldn't it be more fun to think about our giving every single month? That's the powerful way to give long-term monthly giving.
0: Yeah. And you hit on something there too, as far as the earmark gift versus the what is the greatest need for the organization? What, what do you need it for? And I think a lot of people like to give to, I want to control my giving to this. I want to give it to you so that you can spend it on that. Well, or that, you know, meal for the kid or the, whatever you talked about the sponsoring a child to, you know, go to the the kid, those different things. And there's, I'm not, Saying any of those are, are not good or whatever, the, but from an organizational standpoint, I think it's difficult. I, I think, I know it's difficult to run an organization when you have 16 different buckets that you have to take out of that. You can only take out of that bucket for a specific thing, but you need it for something else and you have nothing in that bucket. And so what do you do with that? Right. And so
1: exactly. And so dangerous. So we've had donors that say, I will, I will donate every time you get a child from an orphanage into an institution. It's like, you don't want to make money. My motivator, dude, you do not want me putting a child in an institution so I can, I mean, out of an institution so I can get paid for it. That is not the Mm -hmm. game we're playing here. (laughs) you want me to evaluate on a case by case basis and only put them in a family when it's safe and whether they want to do it. So, you know, we just have some behavior changes. We have some, we have some learning to do, which is totally fair enough. I mean, I'm learning every single day. The thing that I think we all have in common is that we really want to be a difference and we really want to make a difference in a kid's life. And so you find an organization that you trust. I mean, obviously, you know, we're not in this for our, our, you know, health. We're not getting rich off this. I was a lot richer when I was in the corporate world, but, um, you know, you find you bet on the jockey, you bet on the leadership. You bet on organizations that have a, a good track record, um, and and then you let them do their job.
2: Yeah, that's right. No, I, that's what I, I would I agree. Like. Yeah. And and I would just say, you know, hopefully donors are compelled by the mission that the nonprofit is right. is 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 going for and and actually accomplishing. So they give because they believe in the mission. You know, the example that you give there, Caroline, as far as somebody saying that they'll give you money if you can, you know, uh take a kid out of an orphanage and put them in a family that does set a very unsafe precedent. And, yeah. and unfortunately, I think, uh, when it comes to childcare programming, which it's obviously, you know, the vast majority of our listeners to this podcast are, are engaged in some manner, you know, around, around orphan and vulnerable children, when it comes to that specific type of programming, we unfortunately, uh, kind of, uh, boil children down to just kind of this transactional, uh, uh, way of, of working with them. Um, you know, and, and I think that that actually even applies to the service provision. And that's something that we've talked about with Ian as well. Um, but you know, this, this season, we're also looking at child sponsorship, which is kind of similar, like, like, um, just treating that kid, like, like, yeah, like a transaction. Like if you Mm -hmm. do this, then I'll give you that. And, and, um, you know, we see this in short-term missions and volunteerism as well. And and really, if if we are going to run child care nonprofits with excellence, we have to make sure that even in our fundraising, which we need fundraising, and and that our donors are also aware, um, is that we're not going to do anything that that even. Uh, hints of exploitation right, right. um we're not right. going to make money off the backs of these children but rather uh, you believe in our mission for these children so you're getting you know behind our organization and, and hopefully both sides can really uh both the organization and the donor base can really uh, embrace that type of uh, of ethos right right
1: yeah, think- we've been very successful in it. I mean, we have really, we, we just, we, you know, we've been able to shoot straight with our donors. I think that's one of the reasons that we've been so successful in fundraising is because we talk about these um, long term, monthly, um, you know, committed, uh, unrestricted giving and explain why we need that. And um, when we have a situation like COVID, which of course none of us ever, ever, ever prepared for, we were able to continue to give services to kids because of those great donors. So it was, it was really a, a, a good day for us.
0: Yeah, you know, and I, and I think that there is there are amazing people out there who totally get it. Like you said, Brandon, on mission, as you talked about, Caroline, the people who get on jump on board. We have those as well with Providence. And and it's just it's incredible to see. And then I think that too many organizations, though, um, do get caught up in what you talked about is those motivators where somebody will sit, come in and say, Hey, we'll give you a million dollars. If you do X, Y, Z, that's really attractive. But if X, Y, Z is not your mission, then you got to say no. Right. And and I remember talking to a major foundation and they came to, up to me and they say, what's your cost per kid. And, and I just looked at them and and we were, Running a, a community with family-based care, mom and a dad with kids, and and I just looked at him and I said, "You have kids, right?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "What's your cost per kid?" <laughs> I knew that at that point we weren't going to get the money anyway, but I think that that is something that we get driven by things sometimes that are not the right thing. Now, admit that's something that maybe some people do, and that's what they do. But I think that as you said, when you're dealing with human beings. There's no one set thing because different kids need different things and different homes need different things. Different families need different things. And so it, to say that we just have one set cost for one kid, I understand you can break it down. I understand all that. But to have that as your driver and as your marker to get those costs low so you could have a better ROI, man, whew, that's a dangerous precedent to set too. Right. So what do, what do you think on those notes? And you were in the, you were in the, corporate world for, for years beforehand. What do you think, you know, from an organizational health standpoint, what are some organizational mistakes that nonprofits are prone to make and how can you mitigate against that? I mean, some of the things we've talked about probably already, but what are some other things that organizationally you see nonprofits doing that are just not healthy from a, from a, from a business for profit standpoint?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we talked about the metrics and we talked about the cost per child and you talked, you know, that that actually is about a 15 year old model where in in nonprofits for years, nonprofits would just do the work and they didn't have any metrics alongside of it. And in the last 15 years, we've really added metrics and they're powerful and they're really important. And we do need to count. We do need to measure. There's no doubt about it. You would never run a corporate a corporation without metrics, without you know, sure, you know, yeah. So, so that is really good, and I think more and more nonprofits have learned how to measure. I mean, we definitely have a Thrive Scale. We measure every single child. We know, you know, it, it all comes to this. You know, Salesforce database. We can look at every all fifteen thousand kids in one go. So that's really important. Is there's nothing wrong with the metrics? What the next evolution, however, because that was an evolution to do metrics behind programs. The next evolution is commitment. The next evolution is having donors, stakeholders, children, you know, whatever the, whatever the stakeholder is coming together and, and communicating better. That's the next evolution, um, donors saying, I'm committed, I'm gonna stick with you. It takes a long time to fill up a dam. It takes a minute to break it, but it takes a long time to fill up a dam. And that's what we're doing with deinstitutionalization. It's gonna take, some, it's gonna take a while to fill up that dam committed people coming together. And you know, in our space, there were a lot of organizations that came together to talk to the UN about children belonging in families and and successfully there was a group of us that did that. It was awesome. We changed the convention on the rights of the child at the UN level on December 18th, 2019. That is awesome. So, the next evolution of nonprofits is our willingness and ability to work together. Now, on the ground, our programs need to look very different. You know, if you're in Kenya, that program and that strategy needs to be driven from the ground, from the actual stakeholders to tell us what they need, because nobody, here's the here's the secret, nobody wants a solution to the problem more than the person that has the problem. Nobody wants to get out of an institution more than a child that's living in an institution. And so... Um, that so, bringing the stakeholders together and working together is the future. That that's what that's what needs to happen. And it's, it's not that it's bad that nobody's doing it. It's just it's just a missing piece. But we know when organizations come together, um, and we share marketing, and we share resources, and we share policy, and we share funding. That is how you fix a problem and get to systems change forever. That's how you do it.
2: Oh man, that that made my like heart yeah. so happy. That <laughs>
0: that's it. what we do on this show. That's what we're talking about. That's I know. Like, that's the that's the idea is to. That's it.
1: That's bring it. People.
0: it. it's like we and paid you to say that, but we didn't. That that I know. was fantastic. It's,
1: it's it's actually really happening. It's actually really yeah. happening. I mean, you just you know, this, there's a group called the Orphan Myth Group. They came uh-huh. out. They're giving us this. Um, they're giving us this marketing, this language. We should uh-huh. all be talking the same thing. We should all be saying the same thing.
0: Yeah. Orphan myth. Good folks. I've uh, been talking with Lizzie. Yeah. Really good folks. Stuff. We also,
1: we also in our space So we, you know, that's the marketing side. We should be doing that, talking mm-hmm. about the global goals, talking about the orphan myth. Then under resource, we have CAFO and we have better care network. These are two organizations that take all of our resources, all of our tools and put them in one place. So anybody can have them. So, you know, our thrive scale lives on better care network, uh, uh, we share our resources with everybody. So right. it's people starting to share their resources, powerful. That's yeah. the future Yep. policy. You know, we all be together to put that policy and now we need to start, we need to start sharing funding. So I see it y'all. I see it.
0: Yeah. No, and I, I love it. And I, and I think that too, when we start sharing stuff, when we start coming together, that's where, as you talked about too, metrics are key. And, um, I know, um, Bev, uh, Nyberg, I believe it's her last name. She, she does a lot on the metric side as well. And so as we develop metrics that share, I mean, that work, um, so that we have the right metrics, right? I think that's the key to the metrics is not just having metric for metrics sake. Too many people get caught up in, Oh, we need to measure success. Okay. Let's just yeah. measure stuff.
1: Bingo. That's Bingo.
0: not what we need. We need to be coming together and say, what are the right metrics rather than just saying, Oh, we have 90% of our kids graduate from high school. I'm like, okay, that's one thing, but what if they're all like just languishing in morass of whatever else is going on and they're all on drugs and they're all on this, but they graduated. Hey.
1: Yeah, cool. no, exactly. Shared Shared uh, metrics is is also the future. Sharing, yeah. sharing just, you know, measuring the same thing. And you know what? It might be a fruit salad. It doesn't need to be apples to apples. It can be a fruit right. salad. There's nothing wrong with that. But all measuring the same thing, like a family for every kid, is a, is a really good good place to start. Like yep. all having the same goal, that's a great place to start. So, so we're we're getting there. I'm seeing it.
0: Yep, absolutely.
2: All no, right, uh, Brandon, why don't you bring us home, man? I, well, I'm just I just couldn't be uh, happier. You know, one million home. We operate as a social venture, so everything we do is in collaboration and partnership. So, uh, you know, we we kind of work as this catchment for these small to medium sized nonprofits. Uh, many of which people have already heard on the podcast. So, uh, hearing Caroline, you know, kind of even describe what she's seeing is is just uh, so encouraging. Not only for what we're accomplishing here at Think Orphan, but also uh, for our for our other organizational goals at One Million Homes. So, uh, just fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Caroline. You know, as we uh, kind of uh, turn down the final stretch here, uh, we do have a couple questions that we ask uh, every guest. So, for the last. Uh, five six years of the podcast uh we are all about uh generating that uh that uh uh Oh, what's it called? When, 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 when you word of mouth? Holy smokes! Goodness! All right, word of mouth recommendations. Hey, so, it's
0: early out here on the west coast, so that's early
2: okay. out here on the west coast. All <laughs> right, uh, so Caroline, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children and families as well with excellence?
1: You know. Um, when I first started in the nonprofit space, when I when I came back and I told my friends and family that I was going to start uh, you know, a, a nonprofit venture instead of a for-profit venture, um, one of, somebody recommended the book called The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. And they said, just pick up the book and read the section on love. There's three sections of the book. So I picked up the book, I read the section on love. I turned the book, started over at the beginning, read the whole book, turned over, started all over. But that book really totally changed me because it said that love is either work or courage or both. You know, it's real easy to, to love someone who's so great to you and takes care of you and gives you everything you need and thinks you're just the cat's meow. It's a lot harder to love someone um, that might fight against what you want, but that's where really true love, you know, true love, that muscle shows up. So um, the book, the road less traveled, even if you read the middle section on love is something that just really changed changed me in my approach.
2: No, that's that's beautiful and, and definitely worth picking up. All right, so on the on the human front, uh, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence?
1: Well, you know, I, I told you about putting that little orphan girl on that wooden bed on Mother's Day. Her name is Shibani Das. She's 22 today. She is in school. She's in college. Uh, She's a scholarship with Miracle Foundation. She's going to be an educator. Um, She's changed my life because, you know, I know on this podcast, we talk about OVC, you know, orphans and vulnerable children. I talk about OPC, other people's children, and how I can love this other person's child as my own and and give up part of what I want to, you know, give up part of who I am so that she can be who she is. So, you know, Shibani Doss changed my life. She knows she changed my life. She knows I talk about her every single day. She's, um, she's just been a, a true inspiration to me.
2: Wow. Well, uh, you know, these kids are inspiration for all of us and, yeah. and that's, that's why we do the work. That's why, why, why you're doing what you're doing at miracle foundation, why Phil and I are engaged and, and so many other people that really want the best for, for kids, just like Shibani. So, uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And Caroline, thank you so much for, for joining us on the think orphan, uh, gave us uh, so much to think about. And, and, uh, we just so appreciate the work that miracle foundation is leading within this sector. So thank you so much for your time.
1: My pleasure. Nice to be your partner. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Well, just a great conversation there uh, with Caroline. So appreciate the work that Miracle Foundation is is leading out in India, and like I said, they are starting to engage in other places. Uh, if you guys are in uh, Texas, you can definitely look up uh, their headquarters down there. But uh, uh, Phil, this was a this was a new organization for you. Uh, this was my first time meeting Caroline as well. But uh, what kind of what kind of stood out to you, man? What what, what did you take away from the interview?
0: Well, anybody who talks about the next wave that we need being working together and collaborating and actually, you know, coming together and even threw out some systems in there. I mean, like, man, that speaking my language, you know. So I, I loved that, and it wasn't just words. I mean, they're doing it. Um, they're working with others. They're sharing their resources. They're creating the thrive scale, and it's not just based on, you know. What's your weight and height? You know, it's, that's part of it. You know, are you growing? Are you doing as we would with our kids? If they were stunted growth, we'd be going, what's going on? What's the problem? But it's more, so much more than that, you know, community family, uh, all the things that we talk about on the show that are, that are critical. Um, you know, she's, they're, they're doing, and they're working on and they're learning. And that's what I like about it. It's not just let's do something. And, um, and just cause it works, we keep doing it, you know, it's it works, meaning gets us money, gets us, you know, more kids, whatever. Um, but, uh, but it's how are the children thriving? Are they flourishing? Are they, you know, and that's, you know, me, I mean, that's what, that's what this is all about. That's why we do this podcast. And so I was encouraged by that. And then the nonprofit conversation, that's, that's a conversation we could spend days on. Um, We could have whole conferences on that, as we probably should, um, to really be able to help us understand how we can engage people to understand that better, and how can we get people to understand that more and more and more, that we need, not only within organizations, you know, we need you to say, this is um, something that we would do in the the for-profit world, but amongst organizations too, we need to have organizations who are funded to foster collaboration. As we talk about with Providence is Will million home, what you guys are doing, right? So how can we understand that if we're just going to do this as a kind of makeshift, let's figure it out. Let's just, you know, kind of wing it. Our results aren't going to be great. So that I, I just, really appreciated that conversation. I just, I, I really, I mean, I, as you could probably tell, cause we probably, you and I probably both had more, um, you know, kind of button into the conversation, let's say in the interview than we normally do because we're so passionate about these things. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming something for you, but I'm assuming that that, that my assumption's correct on that too. So what did you think?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I love the nonprofit conversation. That's mm-hmm. something that we're going to touch on. Um, you know, multiple times during this particular season of Think Orphan, because it's it's critical. It, it, it's absolutely critical. I mean, when I was in grad school, uh, one of my favorite classes, and it sounds like a nerd class, but I loved it, was nonprofit leadership and administration. I mean, that that class was my jam. I just loved it. So uh, getting to kind of geek out and, and hear Caroline's thoughts and um, running an organization with excellence for for 20 years uh, just really appreciated those, uh, those sentiments and those thoughts that she shared with us. And, you know, it also gets to, to another piece that, that kind of stuck out to me and it was almost kind of like an aside, but at one point in the conversation, she said, you know, at a previous time, we thought it was like this. We thought that if we just raise, you know, the, the, the standard of living for kids and orphanages, then, then, then they will thrive. And, 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 I think even aside from that specific example, I think that when we have these organizations or these leaders or these practitioners that are going at it for year after year, uh, when they learn something and adapt, that's huge. I think think, uh, a sign of maturity is that uh, ability to learn, that ability to grow, that ability to look back and say, you know, I thought it was this way. But after we did that for a little bit, we realized actually it should be this way. And I think that that's amazing. I think too often we see um, almost similar to what you were saying just a moment ago, people that get into a space and they say, well, this is working for me. I'm not going to shift. I'm not going to change. And then instead of, you know, taking 20 years of, you know, nonprofit excellence and, you know, trying to accomplish a mission on behalf of children and growing and adapting and expanding. There's organizations that spend 20 years just kind of stuck in their ways and and not really learning uh, how to grow, how to do better on behalf of children. So uh, I just appreciated that as well. Um, you know that Caroline just kind of put as an aside, but but it's that um, if we are going to grow and expand and impact more children, which is what we want to do, right? Um, uh, we have to also have that not only a learning posture, but a willingness to adapt and a willingness to grow and a willingness to say, yeah, we actually had that wrong, but we're going to, we're going to change now and we're going to do even better. So, uh, yeah, so, so much that I appreciate from Caroline and, and she's such a leader in this space. So, uh, just have the utmost respect for, for her and, and what, what they're doing
0: at Miracle Foundation. So it was really great conversation. Yeah. You know, and I, you talked there about the, um, uh, learning, right? Leaders are learners, but you also said something there too. It's, it's, it's Jim Collins had the level five leader. That's professional will and humility, right? So this humility, you can be a learner, and not be humble, Mm. right? So that humble learning posture where you're learning with an open, with not only an open mind to learn, but an open mind to how does this impact what some things that I see as Non-negotiables, like they they are non-negotiables in some ways, but can you tweak them? Mm-hmm. You know, I can learn from this other person who's been doing it longer, or who has just a different perspective, yeah. right? Maybe you know, as we talk about the care leavers. I mean, why are we not learning more from care leavers? Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: Absolutely. and I, I think it goes with knowledge and wisdom have to go together because mm-hmm. knowledge by itself can kind of puff up. Yeah. Um, and I think we see that actually, we see that way too much, you know, mm-hmm. especially in this age of, uh, <laughs> fake news and disinformation from all sorts of different perspectives and angles. It's right. not even like, you know, that's, that's kind of like a method rather than a, rather than, Oh, that's what that side does. It's actually what a lot of people from a lot of different sides do. And they're seeking after knowledge just to kind of be prideful and puffed up and, and try to shout down, you know, their arguments, but that humility and that wisdom is so critical if we are going to grow and and do better, not only for ourselves, for our families, for God, but also for the children that we serve. So, right. uh, yeah, it was great, man. Speaking Absolutely. of, uh, speaking of growing and knowledge and wisdom, uh, as we, uh, come to the end of our show here, Phil, uh, I would love to hear, man, you, you got a recommendation, anything that kind of dovetails with Caroline or just something that, uh, just something that, uh, yeah. that our listeners should be getting into.
0: I do have a recommendation. I also just want to remind people that one last thing about the metric. I didn't say it during, uh, yeah. is Go for it is don't have your metric. I can tell you this for sure. Do not have your metric of success be you've raised enough money to fund your budget. That is not a good measure of success. It doesn't mean your mission's right. It doesn't, it could be that it is, but just cause you raise enough money does not mean you're doing great work. I'm just going to say that right now. I'm going to leave it there. Okay. The recommendations. The first one is a recommendation that I I can't believe nobody's talked about this book ever on our, on our show. It's uh, a book that, uh, the boy who was raised as a dog. Um, <laughs> if you listen to this show, you know that it has. But I'm just kidding. But I finally listened to the book. It Brandon, be oh, proud okay, of me. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. it came it came up three times during yes. the last season. Yes. Uh, let's see, Kara, Tomra, and somebody else. I can't yeah. remember. But it came up three times.
0: Yes. I think. Oh, it was uh, Caitlin. Oh, Caitlin. and Caitlin. Caitlin, yes. Caitlin uh, Hope. Yep. Yep. So I, I did because I am a man of my word. And when people recommend it that many times, I, I'm going to listen to it. So I was did it good? and it's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, not okay. surprising. I was, I was, uh, you know, yeah, it was fantastic, fantastic book, but that's not my recommendation for today. That was more of a bonus because I, I just had to let everyone out there know that I don't just say I'm going to listen to these things. And we don't just get these recommendations for kicks. Like these are things that we do for a reason, but the, the one, the two, actually two books that I think go along with this nonprofit conversation. One is one of the guru of gurus um, in the nonprofit, not just nonprofit, but the just leadership space, uh, organizational leadership space, Peter Drucker um, book, managing the nonprofit organization. Principles and practices. Most of the books written out there are cheating off of. They're they're basically plagiarizing without quotes. Uh, Peter Drucker stuff. Uh, it's the reality, you know. John Maxwell uses a lot of Peter Drucker stuff. Jim Collins uses a lot of Peter Drucker stuff. We all do, um, whether we know it or not. And then the other one I just mentioned, Jim Collins, uh, good to great in the social sectors. It's a thirty-five page addendum to good to great which is a great book in itself but it it's all you really need to read from the nonprofit space fantastic book that goes to what are the principles to run an organization as it, with excellence not just a great nonprofit organization which i think sometimes has a different bar so how do we keep that bar at that excellence or that you know everybody like say if you shoot for perfection you might you just might hit excellence right so rather than shooting for this, this mediocre bar that we've created for nonprofits, we need to set that bar higher and we need to, we need to shoot for that, that excellence, which I think that Peter Drucker, that book, Good to Great in the Social Sectors, um, and uh, those are the two that I have for us today.
2: Love it, man. Okay. I'm adding those ones to my list because I, I, I want to dig deeper myself. Uh, and, and great that you got into Bruce Perry's work as well. So uh, yep. y- you're very diligent. I haven't read it yet, but I need to. Uh, so thank you for
0: those, Phil. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, Absolutely. man,
2: this has been fun.
0: Yeah, of course. It's, it's always great. It's always great. So folks, as always, we hope that you're taking what you're learning from this show and you're using it in your life. You're using it in, you know, your own home to the extent it, it applies. And we always, always hope that you're taking what you're learning and you're using it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple of weeks.